Isn't it a joy to sing and worship the Lord together, dear church? Yes, amen. I love that. Jesus said, I am the light of the world, and he who follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the what? The light of life, right? As we just sang a little bit earlier, who is the only one who has remained undefeated? Only our holy God, right? So Jesus says, in this world, he says to his disciples, in this world, you're going to have tribulation, you're going to have troubles. Uh, It's going to be hard, but take heart. Be of good cheer, he says. Why? Because I have overcome the world. He wins, and we're with him, so we can take great heart in that. Let's pray before we get into God's word. Heavenly Father, thank you for your grace to us today and the joy it is to worship you, to sing to you, to pray, and to come together as a church body. Uh, We know that through this, God, it's part of your plan and purpose to strengthen us and to use us to be lights in this world, lights for Christ. And so as we hear your word today, I pray that everyone would be receiving it with humble and eager hearts, seeking to know your truth so that we can apply it in our lives and uh, grow in that grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, to whom be the glory and dominion and power forever and ever. Amen. Let us turn to Genesis chapter 6, dear ones. And in this wonderful series that we've been in, in Genesis 1 through 11, God's story of beginnings, we've now completed the first two seas of history, right? Creation in chapters 1 and 2, and then corruption in chapters 3 through 5. We've arrived at chapter 6, which most of us are aware begins the story of the flood and Noah's ark. And we're calling this next sea catastrophe, catastrophe. This destruction that came upon the planet was unlike any in the history of the world back then and even until now. Jesus says there's going to be a a tribulation that's even worse than back then, but so far, nothing like it, nothing like it. This was a truly cataclysmic, catastrophic event that impacted the entire earth and everything living in it. Today, for part one of Catastrophe, we'll be looking at the first eight verses of Genesis chapter 6. And though there's much to consider in this passage, the overall theme is simply this. And you have an insert in your bulletin there if you want to follow along, uh, along with the outline. But the theme, the main theme, the big idea, big picture, is that the widespread wickedness of man causes God to grieve and to bring judgment. Judgment which can only be escaped by his gracious favor. So I'm going to read the text. It's Genesis 6, verses 1 through 8. And if you are able to, please stand with me as we honor God's word together. Genesis 6, verses 1 through 8 is our passage for this morning. And the title is Man's Utter Depravity, God's Amazing Grace. Genesis 6, starting in verse 1. Now it came about when men began to multiply on the face of the land and daughters were born to them, that the sons of God saw that the daughters of men were beautiful and they took wives for themselves, whomever they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not strive with man forever because he also is flesh. Nevertheless, his days shall be 120 years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterward, when the sons of God came into the daughters of men, and they bore children to them. Those were the mighty men who were of old, men of renown. 
Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth, and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. The Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth, and he was grieved in his heart. The Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, from man to animals to creeping things and to birds of the sky, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Please be seated. So our first point here is that Earth's conditions, well, it's of Earth's conditions regarding mankind is the way I put it, our first four verses. And um, I'll have you know that these four verses uh, have vexed um, more than one Bible scholar, theologian, commentator, pastor, preacher. Um, They've been described by many as the most difficult to interpret of any passage in all of Genesis. Uh, There's been an ocean of ink spilt and many a forest of trees killed uh, to try to explain uh, these verses and get to the interpretation and the different views that are out there. Um, On top of that, for some reason, people tend to get very heated about their particular view about this. Uh, It's somehow become quite an emotional topic for, for some people. And maybe it's because there's been so much like time and reading and study and blood and sweat and tears uh, poured into it. Um, But anyway, I'm comforted by the fact that whichever of the main views that uh, you take on this passage, it doesn't significantly significantly affect any major doctrine of the Bible. Um, It is not a gospel issue or a theological heresy issue by any means. So it's okay for people to have differing views on this, at least the, the main views that are out there. Uh, that said, I'm going to explain what those main views are uh, as succinctly as I can, and uh, I'll tell you which one I lean toward as we go through this first point, point. Um, and I've entitled it Earth's Conditions Regarding Mankind. It's a very objective, neutral way to head that, but um, I'm wanting not to spend too much time on this because I don't want to lose the forest for the trees, right? Um, it is important to work through the details some, uh, which is the trees, Right? but not at the expense of missing the big picture, which is the forest. So we can get so wrapped up in the explanation of these verses that we forget the larger scope and the main theme of this passage, which, once again, is that the widespread wickedness of man causes God to grieve and to bring judgment, a judgment that can only be escaped by God's gracious favor. That's the main idea. All right? So first, though, we need to get into this, and it starts in verse 1. Now it came about when men began to multiply on the face of the land and daughters were born to them. Okay, this oft-debated passage actually starts off innocently enough. Right? The opening verse follows that wonderful genealogy that we saw last Sunday, tracing the line of descendants from Adam to Noah, ten generations which we looked at. The primary purpose of that genealogy was what? Okay, to show us that God preserves the line of descendants through whom the promised seed will come. The promised seed of the woman, Genesis 3.15, right? And so it would be through Seth's line, not Cain's. And we saw in chapter 4 before that the clear contrast between the godless legacy of Cain and the righteous legacy of Seth when men began calling upon the name of Yahweh. 
So that continued through chapter 5. A few exceptional men stood out amidst the death and sin occurring around them. Enoch, who did not die, but God took him straight up to heaven to his presence. And then we went down a few verses later, and Lamech's son, Noah, this is the good Lamech, right? His son, Noah, who was looked on with hope of rest and comfort. And so verse 1 of chapter 6 says that it was during this time that people were multiplying on the face of the earth. Basically, the blessings of the creation mandate to be fruitful and multiply was happening. So far, so good. No problems here. But verse 2 is where the questions begin. Right? Who are the sons of God? Who are the daughters of men? And then what does verse 3 mean? And verse 4, the big question everybody has, who are the Nephilim? Okay, uh, maybe the biggest question of all for us Bible students is this. How are these first four verses linked with the rest of the flood story that we're going to cover in the next three chapters? Or even to what extent are these first four verses linked with the rest of the flood story? And I have to say, just reading this, you know, verse 2 on the face of it, considering its language and meaning, it still seems like nothing that unusual. Verse 2, that the sons of God saw that the daughters of men were beautiful. They took wives for themselves, whomever they chose. doesn't seem necessarily like nothing bad, particularly bad, is going on here. But we get that there's some implication of something bad going on because of the next few verses. And especially when we get to verse 5. Right? In any case, let me give you the two main views. Two main views. There's actually like three, three like pretty big ones. I, I, don't, I, I don't want to get into the third one because it's similar to the others. But two main views. Either of these are possible to be right uh, in my estimation, although I lean towards one over the other. The first main view of who these sons of God were, that they're fallen angels, okay, demons, who either take the form of human men or take possession of human men, and they take human women to marry and procreate with. These are like ungodly and unnatural unions which are producing ever more wicked offspring, causing sin and perversion to proliferate more and more and more in the earth. Some believe that their children were part of the Nephilim, who they think are, are a supernaturally powerful and wicked race of people. Not everybody who holds to main view number one um, holds to that part of it, um, but some do. Okay, So that's the gist of main view number one. Uh, main view number two is this. The sons of God are men of Seth's righteous line. And the daughters of men are women of Cain's ungodly line. Okay? So there's a, a mixing of the godly and ungodly going on here. Um, in the foundational institution of marriage and families. And through these mixed intermarriages, the sinfulness of mankind in general spreads in the earth. Right? So let me just give you some pros of main view number one. Okay, we'll call it the demon male human women view. Okay? So the phrase sons of God is used in the Old Testament to describe angels. Okay, particularly... In Job 1, verse 6, Job 2, verse 1, and Job 38, verse 7. Actually, they're, they're in Job, okay? Those three areas. Um, so it, does, it doesn't refer to human men in Job or to believing men in Job. It's specific to angels. So that's a pro, right? Um, 
the phrase daughters of men, it means what it, it just seems to mean, right? Regular human women, not this special separate class of women. So that's another point of support for this main view number one. Um, the interpretation of such immorality occurring, right? Demon-possessed men uh, marrying and procreating with human women and producing super wicked offspring uh, helps, makes, helps to make sense of God destroying the entire earth, right? Which he says he's going to do uh, shortly. And then um, the last point of support for this is those New Testament references that some of us are aware of, right? In 1 Peter 3, verses 19 and 20, you can just jot these down. 2 Peter 2, verses 4 and 5. 2 Peter 2, verses 4 and 5, and Jude 6 and 7. They seem to offer support, New Testament verse support, for this interpretation. Okay, and I won't go through it all, but basically 1 Peter 3, it's that Christ went to proclaim victory to disobedient spirits or fallen angelic beings who are connected up with the days of Noah. Okay, if you read those verses, it, it seems like it could be linked. Second Peter chapter 2, um, those verses possibly connect sinning angels with the punishment of the flood in Noah's time. Okay, possibly, possibly, and then possibly not as well, but... Um, in Jude, it seems to link God's judgment of some wicked angels, the way Jude puts it, is uh, leaving their proper abode, their proper dwelling. Okay? And it seems to uh, connect that with sexual lust of some kind, okay? comparing them with the days of Sodom and Gomorrah, right? men going after strange flesh, which could possibly mean like flesh of a different nature. Okay? And Sodom and Gomorrah is talking about homosexuality, but it's, it's comparing, Jude is comparing that with these possibly with these um, wicked angels. So those are some compelling reasons uh, to go with that view. Uh, in response to that, one could point out that the phrase sons of God is used of good angels in, in Job in those three areas, not of demons, not of fallen angels. Okay, so that's kind of a, makes you question it a little bit. Um, although it makes logical sense that the offspring of demon men and human women would be especially wicked, uh, verse 4 does not actually even indicate that that's what's happened. It just says that the Nephilim were living in those days when these intermarriages, whatever kind of intermarriages they were, uh, it says they were living in those days and also afterward. And it's debatable who the Nephilim are even in the first place, but apparently they are men known for their stature, either physically large like giants and or particularly strong men. Okay, They're mentioned in Numbers 13. right? So, uh, when you look at the end of verse 4, it says those, uh, end of verse 4, sorry. It says those were the mighty men who were of old, men of renown. Uh, it's talking about the Nephilim, not their offspring. Okay, uh, So that kind of nixes that, that, that part of it. Uh, the references in First and Second Peter that I just gave you and in Jude, linking them directly with what's going on here in Genesis 6 is a possibility. I hold out that it's a possibility. But definitely it's not a slam dunk as far as what those passages are referring to. It's possible, actually, that none of those passages are directly connected to what's going on here in Genesis chapter 6. And then lastly, uh, this interpretation seems to come a bit out of the blue of where we are in the story of Genesis chapter 6, following Genesis 5. All of a sudden, fallen angels are on the earth entering into human males and reproducing with human females. There doesn't seem to be any context for that. Uh, 
Um, and the focus in this passage is on man. It's on humans, men and women, human beings, not angelic beings or demons. Every verse, in fact, each verse, each phrase uses the word men or pronoun for men or humans. Okay? And the judgment from God, obviously, as we know, is directly toward humans. He says in verse 7, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land. Okay? So those are some things to think about if you hold to the first view. Uh, the second main view, let me just give you some pros, which I'm calling the Seth Cain intermarriage view. Seth Cain intermarriage view. It seems to fit the flow of the story better. There's context for the sons of God referring to Seth's descendants because it's immediately following the Genesis 5 genealogy. Um, and they're called that here because it was in Seth's time and his legacy of men who began to call upon the name of the Lord. You remember that from the end of Genesis chapter 4? So they're pointed out as the sons of God rather than sons of men. Okay, So there's an argument there that that's um, referring to Seth's line. The phrase daughters of men is more problematic to me. It seems somewhat of a stretch to interpret that phrase as being specifically of Cain's line. I'm not saying it's impossible, but that's the most problematic. Um, You might have noticed when we went over Cain's descendants in chapter 4, the end of chapter 4, there's a daughter mentioned, okay, Nama, okay, from the evil Lamech, right, the bad bigamist Lamech. Um, Also, there's the names of Lamech's two wives mentioned in Cain's uh, descendants. So in contrast to that, Seth's line in Genesis 5 mentions only sons. So daughters of men could very indirectly be speaking of Cain's line, right? Again, I I grant that that it's uh, a bit stretching. It's it's definitely questionable. But um, let me give you another point of support for the Seth-Cain intermarriage view. Uh, The focus on human beings, okay, men and women, not on like some hybrid offspring, Okay, sons of God and daughters of men, in context here, it's just plainly seems to be talking about humans. And it's, it's their sin, okay, this intermarrying between the two lines that appears to be contributing to the sinfulness of mankind at large. So as opposed to those, to like a particular segment of mankind like Nephilim and judgment because of them, that judgment is on the whole, whole race of humans. Okay, that, that's just um, doesn't seem balanced. So to that point, as mentioned already, the focus of the passage is people, men, not a special hybrid. The repetition of that word men speaks volumes. And um, so that's that. So I think either view is possible. I very slightly lean towards the Seth Cain intermarriage view. And uh, if you want to just debate about that um, during care groups or after church today. I'm, <laughs> I'm glad to talk with you about that. I'm, I, I think it's important not to get over-hyped about this and over, you know, dogmatic. Uh, it, it's impossible to get dogmatic about it when you look at all the details, folks. And it has been a painstaking couple of weeks uh, in study here. But um, anyway, continuing. Verse 2, I do want to explain a little bit more here. Verse 2, it says, The sons of God saw that the daughters of men were beautiful. They took wives for themselves, whomever they chose. So the explanation would be that Seth's righteous line of men see that, hmm, wow, these Cainite women are beautiful. That word means attractive or fair or good. And so they base their choice of wives on the outward appearance of these women 
rather than on their inward character. Okay, this is according to the Seth Cain intermarriage view. So where it says that they took wives from themselves, whomever they chose, listen, it's not talking about rape here. It's not talking about by force. Just that they're marrying whoever they want. It doesn't matter to them that these ladies are not of their godly line. They're not generally worshiping God. These sons of God, Sethites, seem not to be operating based on godliness, but rather superficial, human, fleshly motives. Verse 2, notice this. Verse 2, it says, They saw, they took, they chose. Does that remind you of something? Eve, right? Genesis 3, verse 6. She saw, she took, and she ate. And it's a, a possible, possible uh, subtle indication that the marriages going on here were not righteous, okay, not godly. More according to the flesh and the eyes rather than the spirit. And of course, later in the Old Testament, the Pentateuch and on, God repeatedly gives Israel orders not to intermarry with the pagan people around them. And the New Testament, to Christians, 2 Corinthians chapter 6, it, it says that the, the, there, there's, no, there's no fellowship, there's no mixing between non-Christians and Christians. And we can apply that to marriage. So it appears that these mixed marriages are, are happening in general. And this was part of the conditions on earth during Noah's time. And verse 3, the next verse, seems to give another slight hint that this was not good with God. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not strive with man forever, because he also is flesh. And so there's much debate about the meanings of almost each key word in this verse as well. Uh, without getting overly caught up in all the details, I'm just going to give you the sense of it overall. Okay? Basically, God is intervening here in the lifespan of mankind with the removal of his empowering, life-giving spirit to them. Okay, I don't think spirit here is talking about God's personal presence, even though my Bible has spirit in capital S. Right? I don't think it's talking about his Holy Spirit being taken away from man. It's just that God withdraws his lowercase spirit, which is necessary for survival, his life-giving power. Uh, he will not strive, abide in. He will not rest in man forever. It will not rest in man forever. And this results in mankind's lifespan being abbreviated. So man generally will not live for hundreds of years like they have been, right? 900 plus years, but a maximum of 120 years. And some of you are asking, well, they actually did live for hundreds of years, even after the flood and just uh, all the way until, you know, when we, until we get to like Abraham's time and after that. Um, but kind of like with Adam and Eve, right? God was gracious. God was merciful. When they disobeyed and they ate of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, he didn't kill them physically right on the spot. He gave them grace. They did die spiritually, and 900 years later, they would die. But kind of like that, um, man's lifespan gradually decreased over the next 1,000 years or so. By the time we get to Moses' era, um, people generally lived 70 to 80 years, as we went over last Sunday, Psalm 90, right? Um, but Moses himself lived how long? Right on the dot, 120 years, right? And so... Um, so that's kind of a, a max point. By the way, today the oldest living woman is 116 years old. And um, our dear Ivan's mom is uh, catching up to her. But uh, the oldest living man today is 114 years old. Uh, according to BBC Science, the oldest verified person to have ever lived 
is a French lady named Jean-Louise Calmain. She lived from 1875 to 1997. That's 122 years. Okay? Um, just all of a sudden, God is going to just judge, judge the earth just after the information that's given there, uh, whatever those mixed marriages are. It seems somewhat ambiguous and um, out of the blue that it would mean that. But it's possible. By the way, Noah was 600 years old around the time that this is all going on, and he's 500 years old when the flood comes. So that's 100 years. Okay, So 100, 120 years. Perhaps it's exact, perhaps not. But anyway, moving on to verse 4, the good old Nephilim. Again, quite a few issues could be addressed here. But a plain reading of this verse simply indicates, here's what else it was like on earth during this time. Okay, there were these Nephilim around. Literally, Nephilim means fallen ones. Okay, it's from the Hebrew verb, which means to fall. Fallen ones, uh, mighty men known to be powerful men, like large in stature, as I mentioned. The KJV, King James Version, says giants. That's the way they're described by the cowardly spies in Numbers chapter 13, okay, who, by the way, are exaggerating. Uh, they're saying we're like grasshoppers compared to these huge people, and they're all scared, and they go back, back to the, the land with their, um, back to the people with the, the bad report, right? They're exaggerating. Um, nonetheless, they were large men, powerful men, these Nephilim lived, it says in verse 4, in those days and also afterward. So what days? What days? Well, when the sons of God, which we say, I say, is Seth's line, were reproducing with the daughters of men, Cain's line, the Nephilim were not the product of those mixed marriages. It says they were just around at that time and after that time as well. So apparently the earth contained powerful, strong men like these during the days of Noah. And who knows? I mean, it kind of makes sense, right? People live to be 900 years old. You'd think that maybe they'd, they'd grow uh, to be physically taller than someone who lives 60 or 70 or 80 or 90 years. Um, maybe in general people were, were larger, and then these were extraordinarily strong and, and, and large giants, famously big people. Um, so to be honest, uh, I, I'm not entirely sure why they're even mentioned here. Uh, after all my uh, sweat and tears poured out over this, uh, it's possible that along with being strong and powerful and large, they were also violent and brutal. Okay, and that would add to the description of mankind's sinfulness during this time. Uh, the problem with that is that the text doesn't really indicate that at all. It just, it just says that they're mighty men who were, old, uh, who were of old, men of renown. And the, there's no Hebrew nuance that says that they were like these killers and, and violent uh, people. So it seems to me that this just rounds out the picture of Earth's conditions regarding mankind during the time of Noah. And these first four verses give an implied sense that things were not as they should be. Okay, so with that description of the sons of God, men of Cessline, who were more righteous, they were of the righteous line, and yet too they were sinning, sinful making ungodly choices, and especially in the foundational institution of marriage. 
And so, starting in verse 5, the sinfulness of all mankind is, is being described now. Okay, whatever view you take of verses 1 through 4, verse 5 is crystal clear and indisputable. By this time, mankind's wickedness was widespread, extremely so. Sin was abounding, corruption increasing, malice multiplying, depravity the norm. Okay, man's sin grieves and offends God. That's our second point, verses 5 through 7. Man's sin grieves and offends God. It says in verse 5, Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth, and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Drop down to verse 11. It says, Now the earth was corrupt in the sight of God, and the earth was filled with violence. God looked on the earth, and behold, it was corrupt. For all flesh had corrupted their way upon the earth. Then God said to Noah, The end of all flesh has come before me. Why? For the earth is filled with violence because of them. And behold, I am about to destroy them with the earth. This is a picture of utter depravity. Violence filling the earth, evil all around. Everything and everyone corrupt. That is to say, ruined, spoiled, devastation. It's the whole planet practicing lawlessness and violence. And it's not violence that's the result of natural disasters, like earthquakes or something, but the kind that stems from human malice and hatred. It's a picture of murderous people, war, conflicts, rape, abuse. It's rampant everywhere you go, everywhere you look. Hey, we have a, a glimpse in today's world, don't we? Just the nightly news. Um, especially the the brutality of Hamas, their latest terrorizing attack on Israel, kidnapping, rape, killing of women and children, even babies. This kind of despicable behavior, just imagine that as the norm all over the earth, everywhere around you. This is what the Lord saw when he looks upon his creation. Notice verse 5. It's not only the outward behavior that God is looking at and is grieved over, right? It says the wickedness of man was great on the earth, but also that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. See, it's not only mankind's actions that are evil, but the very thoughts and intents of their hearts. It says only evil, literally only evil all the day. No respite, no break. Sin doesn't sleep. Every intent, that's every purpose which is framed in the mind, including imagination, including thoughts. God sees all of this. He sees what's inside people's hearts. And what he sees is not good at all. I had a Catholic friend, have a Catholic friend, who was saved at the age of 60. And when he got saved, he said to me, it never dawned on me as a Catholic, as an unbeliever, that I was not damned. I was not going to be judged for what was going on on the inside. I always thought it was just about my actions, my deeds, and my words, things that I did. I didn't know that God would judge me for, for the inside, my thoughts, and my heart. When he got saved, the light went on. He understood his sin for real. So we tend to observe and judge others based on outward appearance, right? External behavior. And some of the more sanguine, optimistic among us like to describe certain people as having 
a good heart, right? Like speaking of a, an unbelieving friend or family member, so-and-so has a good heart, or he or she is a good person. I heard this many, many a time, and I understand what, what people are talking about. But the truth is, back in Noah's day and our day, there's no one good. There are none righteous, not even one. All have turned aside. There is none who does good, not even one. Romans 3, verses 10 through 12. Paul repeats that, not even one, twice. Not even one single person who is good or does good. There's none who seeks after God, none who understands. And he's actually quoting from Psalm 14. Old Testament, New Testament, it doesn't matter what what age it is. It's all the same. Jesus tells the rich young ruler that no one is good except God alone. Right? Which should have caused that young man to consider who it is that he was speaking to. Right? The Son of God himself. And in God's holy standard, there's no one good except God himself. God doesn't go by our standards. We might call someone good, but they're not good. So God is seeing the heart of man, his inner being, his persona, the seat of both his thoughts and emotions. He doesn't just look at the outside, but on the heart, the essence of the person. And he sees the total picture, how totally depraved it is. Dark, selfish, murderous, hateful, and spiteful. To quote Matthew Henry, he says, There is no good to be found among these men. The stream of sin was full and strong and constant. These people were simply vile, wicked, and arrogant, end quote. And this is the result of Adam and Eve's fall in the garden. Every single person since then has taken on this depraved, sinful nature. And uh, by the way, uh, this didn't change after the flood either, right? In case you were wondering, the end of chapter 8 of Genesis, after the flood has subsided. Chapter 8, verse 21 says, The intent of man's heart is evil from his youth. Same wicked heart, which points us to God's amazing grace and mercy toward all of us, every person. So, listen, folks, it's hard enough for us to see what's going on in Israel and just um, hard enough to see and know the, the perverse evil that's happening there. I haven't even, like, looked much at the the clips and the news and stuff. Um, Or seeing that Sound of Freedom movie and uh, just visually seeing the the perversity and and the disgusting nature of of, uh, child sex trafficking that's going on in the world. Can you imagine being able to see what's inside their defiled, depraved hearts? This is what God sees. And um, the truth is, That's what God sees when he looks in our hearts, too. He can see everything in your heart and my heart. None of us would want all of our inner thoughts from this past week to be broadcast on the screen behind me, right, for all of us to to share. Uh, We'd be embarrassed and shamed beyond degree. But God sees it all. He knows it all. It's crystal clear. It's not blurry. It's not kind of hit or miss. Uh, He sees everything. And... We can't take this lightly, dear ones, because this is the point. God sees, he knows, and he cares, and he's deeply grieved about man's sinfulness. He's not just offended. Um, His holiness, his righteousness, his justice is offended, but the emphasis of this passage is God's grief over man's sinfulness. Verse 6 says, The Lord was sorry that he made man on the earth, and he was grieved 
in his heart. Verse 7b says, I am sorry that I have made them. I'm sorry. This is the heart of God. He was sorry. He wasn't apologizing. But in sorrow, in sadness, he's grieved over man. Hey, just by the way, some translations use the word repented. He repented that he made man. But that's not the best word to use. uh, Because obviously, that implies that God has sin uh, to repent of, to turn from. Or he sinned in making man, which is the furthest thing from what this is saying. It's not about God changing his mind or repenting, but simply that he's profoundly displeased and disquieted by man's widespread wickedness. Okay, I mentioned a few Sundays ago when God had no regard for Cain's offering, that Cain got hot with anger, right? His countenance fell. Cain was hurt. He was hurt that God had no regard for his offering. And I asked, who should have been the one who was offended and hurt there? By Cain's faithless worship and his thoughtless giving of his offerings. Hey, the answer was and is God. God should have been the one who was hurt by that. And he does take offense at our sin, but he's also saddened. He's grieved. He's hurt by our sin in his love and care for us. It's not in the same exact way as we get hurt by people's sins against us because God is not, not like man, right? He is God. But Moses is using the expressions of human sorrow and pain to demonstrate God's attitude towards mankind's sin. So, um, hey, we need to praise the Lord that those of us who are Christians, we've been given a new nature, a new heart, a new heart. Praise the Lord. Yes, hallelujah. And so God does not see us in this way anymore if we're born again. Hey, we've been justified by the blood of Christ. We've been declared righteous by the judge himself in his courtroom. He sees us now as clothed in the righteousness of his own son who he gave to us in his love. And so now there's no more condemnation for those of us who are in Christ Jesus. Amen. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. But I think it's good to consider that our remaining sins, our flesh, our sinful lusts and passions that we sang, cleanse me, O Lord, right? Inside and out. They're still there. God sees and he does see and knows about all of it. He's with us. He's for us in the battle against our flesh and sin. Perhaps, perhaps it's helpful to be reminded how much our sin does grieve and saddens God. God uses a, a bunch of things to sanctify us, folks, and this is another one of them. So to quote uh, commentator Kenneth Matthews, he says, he writes, God is no robot. We know him as a personal living God, not a static principle, who, while having transcendent purposes, to be sure, also engages intimately with his creation. Our God is incomparably affected by, even pained by, the sinner's rebellion. Acknowledging the passability, which is the emotions of God, does not diminish the immutability of his promissory purposes, end quote, immutably, his unchanging nature, okay? So back to Genesis 6, he is in sorrow over man's wickedness, it says, to the heart, okay, in his heart. He sees it all from inside and out. He's the only one who can judge rightly. Hey, dear ones, if any one of you had a question of, um, does God really take sin that seriously? Or just how seriously does God take the sin of man? Um, Verse 7, the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, from the face of the earth, from man to animals, creeping things, and the birds of the sky. Verse 13, you drop down there next week. It says, God said to Noah, the end of all flesh has come before me, 
For the earth is filled with violence because of them, and behold, I am about to destroy them with the earth. God is the only one who can judge righteously. He determines that he will destroy every man and every animal that he created. It's the, um, the thought there. There's been a few thousand years for this human depravity to grow, and it's taken over the beautiful earth and creation that God made. Man was supposed to multiply and fill the earth as a blessing, but they filled it with corruption and violence and wickedness instead. Hey, do you get the just upside-down, backwards thing that's going on there? God's judgment then is to destroy all living creatures on the earth, blot out, okay, wipe out. That literally means to erase, okay, to expunge completely. Same, same word used in 2 Kings chapter 21, verse 13. You can jot it down. 2 Kings 21, 13. That's God's response to the wickedness of King Manasseh, an especially evil king, and also Judah's idolatry, following their king in his, his pagan worship. He said, God says, I will stretch over Jerusalem the line of Samaria, and I will wipe Jerusalem as one wipes a dish, wiping it and turning it upside down. Okay, same word used here in Genesis chapter 6. I will blot out man from the face of the earth. And so here it says, God's grief and offense over man's sin has impacted the entire earth. Mankind's evil has cosmic implications. And we see that in, in that God says he's going to destroy all the animals as well as the humans. Okay, so man's sin does not affect humanity alone. That's an interesting thing to think about. Okay, it has ruined not just human life, but everything that is part of mankind's dominion, which God gave to them, right, to rule over the creation, all the animal kingdom and the earth. So even the animal kingdom now has been ruined alongside the humans because of their sin. So yes, uh, this is a sobering reminder of how seriously God takes sin, okay, way more seriously than we think. And maybe that's encouraging to, to some of you today, right? Because you're so disturbed about what's going on in, in the world and all the evil and just the, all the just twisted, perverted stuff and all these this government evils and stuff. Maybe you're getting caught up in that and you're, you're frustrated. But God sees it way more clearly than you do. Hey, God cares and aggrieves him way more than you do. He loves way more than you and I do. He has way more compassion on these people. And he desires for all men to come to repentance and be saved. That's the good news, which we need to give to them. And so, uh, man's sin uh, saddens and offends God profoundly and deeply. He cares way more than you think about the sins of the world that's out there and your sins. He cares way more than you think about your evil thoughts, your unbiblical convictions, your lust, your, your passions, your anger, your everything. He cares way more about that than you think. So I asked before, do you want to know how seriously God takes sin? Just look at what he's going to do here. Look at what he says. Look at what he did in the flood. Destroy, wipe out every living being. But I want to ask now, do you want to know how deep God's love and mercy and grace is towards sinners? Look at verse 8. It's our last point here. Verse 8 says, But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. And we will learn more about Noah next Sunday in the verses to come. But here, the emphasis is on God's favor. 
That word can be translated grace. I really like that translation, actually. Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. God looked and saw great wickedness in the earth, unbelievable evil, inside of every person, displayed in their outward behavior. Once again, you think things are bad right now, and you think you can see some things evil that are going on in the world. But in those days, way, 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 way worse. Okay? Um, But the emphasis here is on God's grace. He looked at Noah and saw him with unmerited favor. Okay, that's grace, right? Yes, Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his time. Noah walked with God. We're going to look at that next week, verse 9. And yes, Noah had faith in God, believed what he said was coming in the flood, Hebrews 11. But the emphasis, focus here is God's gracious favor. That's what Noah received. Okay, it's interesting that the description of Noah in verse 9, being a righteous man, it comes after Noah finding favor. Right? He was saved by grace. He and his family survived the flood because God in his grace blessed them, chose them, and he showed Noah how to build the ark, right? And so they were rescued. God did not have to save anyone on the earth. Can we be reminded of that this morning? He didn't have to save a single soul. Favor is up to a holy, righteous God's soul discretion. It's up to God. He's the one who bestows grace, who gives grace, who lavishes grace. And again, when we consider the rampant sin and rebellion and evil in the hearts of man and in our hearts, we must see how amazing God's grace is. How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. And we've been seeing his grace, truth be told, since the fall of Adam and Eve. Right? We've been seeing it throughout even these first five chapters of Genesis. And we'll continue to see it in his preservation of the human uh, family as we go on uh, through chapter 11 in Genesis. Despite human sin continuing to proliferate and the pride of man and just wickedness of man, it's still there. God keeps his promise to preserve the line of the woman through Seth's descendants all the way through Noah and through which the promised seed will come. So Noah finds favor in the eyes of the Lord. He sees all the the wickedness of man, but now he sees Noah with these gracious eyes. Some theologians have added that this giving of grace to Noah didn't simply occur at like this, like a, a particular point in time. Quote, but rather it reflects the state that Noah is in. The verse describes an act that had taken place long before and continues into the present. Noah is in a state of grace. And end quote. So he finds favor in the, gra- in, the, in, the, in the eyes of the Lord God. So to conclude, once again, our theme is that widespread wickedness causes God to grieve and to bring judgment, this judgment which can only be escaped by his gracious favor. And that's the timeless truth. Because we can only escape God's righteous judgment by his grace. Amazing grace found only in the gospel of Jesus Christ. A John Flavel, theologian of old, wrote, How deep is the pollution of sin that nothing but the blood of Christ can cleanse it. All the tears of penitent sinner, should he shed as many as there have fallen drops of rain since the creation, cannot wash away even one sin. The everlasting burnings of hell cannot purify 
the flaming conscience from the least sin, end quote. In other words, we're all in need of God's grace. And that unmerited, undeserved favor is found only in Jesus Christ. Only his blood can wash away our sins. We don't deserve the things that Jesus has done for us. And 2 Corinthians 8, verse 9 is a very encouraging verse, which I want to read to you. 2 Corinthians 8, verse 9 says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, through his poverty, might become rich. And the next uh, few chapters later, um, we know our entrance into heaven is by that grace of our Lord Jesus, right? By grace you have been saved through faith and that, not of yourselves. It's a gift of God. And so those of us who are in Christ Jesus, last verse, 2 Corinthians 12, verse 9 and 10, we are in need of this every single day, just like the Apostle Paul. Paul writes, and he has said to me, this is Jesus, this is God saying to him, my grace is sufficient for you, for power is perfected in weakness. So Paul responds by saying, Most gladly, therefore, I will rather boast about my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may dwell in me. Therefore, I am well content with weaknesses, with insults, with distresses, with persecutions, with difficulties, for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Great, great truth and encouragement for your souls this morning. If you're discouraged, run to Christ. If if you lack joy, you lack happiness this morning, run to Christ. He promises eternal joy. He even commands that you rejoice in the Lord, in him, always. And again, he will say, rejoice. Rejoice in the Lord, because he is the victor. He is our king. Let's pray. Father God, we praise you for letting us know what the truth is way back when and what the truth is for the future. You are the sovereign one who sits on the throne. You are in control of all things. And so we can rest. We can rest in peace um, with glad hearts trusting in you. We know that you cause all things to work together for good to those who love you, to those who have been called according to your purpose. And so we ask your help, God, for us to find your grace sufficient for us. It's enough. It's more than adequate and that we would be equipped by the strength of your word and the power of your spirit uh, to live out these truths that we know to be from your word and that we would fight the good fight of faith. We would stand up for righteousness. We would bless others with grace and truth and we would live more and more for your will to be done and not ours. Help us with that, God, and may you be glorified as we do. And uh, we pray these things in Christ's strong name. Amen.